0: Hello and welcome back. We're going to do a little housekeeping real quick. First off, you're going to be seeing some changes. I'm renaming The Will to DIY. And that is after talking with a couple of really smart people, they were really confused as hell by the name, and I realized that maybe my philosophy puns aren't actually very punny. Uh, so in an effort towards a little bit more clarity, we'll henceforth be known as Princess Buttercup. I mean wait that was the runner up name uh we will henceforth be known as let's think about it so it's a lot more straightforward as a name it's quite obvious and it might help a bit with the marketing as we go forward uh so yes we'll be updating the look the name the website some things like that but you're going to still be able to receive the same great content all right and on with the show <laughs> So a couple times this month, I have bumped into people talking about the difference between guilt and shame. So of course, I didn't know there really was a difference, and so I had to look it up. My first thought was that guilt was basically what mothers did to their sons to control them or something like this. And I thought of shame as this thing that you're supposed to feel after you whacked off. And I know, I need therapy. Uh, But what I actually found out was that guilt is where your actions are a problem to others. And you actually feel bad about the things you do insofar as you hurt people or you put other people out. Basically, your empathy for others causes you to feel bad for screwing up. So that's guilt. So I might be guilty or feel guilty for missing a work meeting. And this negatively affects both them and me. But it doesn't actually mean I'm a bad person. But what if a whole society is somehow predicated on guilt or shame? right? It's not just individuals, but it pervades everything. Now, what does that look like? Is, say, a more Catholic country like Spain or Italy or Mexico, is that more of a guilt than a shame culture because they actually have sort of forgiveness built into it? So if they screw up, it's really not their fault. And maybe it's even beyond that, right? Maybe they don't even feel any guilt at all for showing up three hours late to a meeting while it's driving me berserk. And now a shame culture, what does that look like? Is that America or England with our Protestant internalization of guilt? And uh, maybe that comes from our personal relationship with God where he's inside of us, right? Or maybe, uh, how do we consider Middle Eastern countries, Muslim countries, or caste system countries? What is a meritocratic system? I think, of course, that has evolved out of a more shame-based culture, and that probably manifested from our Protestant roots. But we can get into all that in just a moment. First, let's consider guilt or shame. Now, they're, of course, inherent to humans, and they have a place and a function. Whether or not that's good or bad is debatable, but they actually do work, right, in a certain way. Shame and guilt are really how society makes sure that certain behaviors are norms. These are our social mores, social mores. My God, Junifred, she's showing her ankles in public. Oh. These mores change over time, Right. And not every action has to be a law. It doesn't have to become a policy, right? Sometimes society can take care of these things on their own. Whenever you turn something into law or a policy, this is just a way to outsource our communal interactions to the state, to the judicial system. Sir, you know you must open doors for young people. And no chewing gum while walking. That's just reckless. Ugh, make me sick. Here are your tickets. Oh, and you know what? That lady over there, she doesn't like your tight pants. Here's another ticket. Now, most of the time, I kind of advocate for social pressure or social modeling to move society forward, not really more laws, of which we already have a ton and a whole money-sucking system built around maintaining and enforcing them, and I don't even know if that works, right? So why should we just keep adding laws on top of it? But if we use social pressure and we're really I mean, when we do that, we're playing on a deep human urge that people want to be liked. They want to fit in. They want to participate in community. So yes, we can nudge them into certain behaviors. We can nudge them into wearing masks, being polite, wearing deodorant. Yes, we can thank them for helping us with our groceries. And this basically means that we train somebody... That a kind action equals a reward. We help establish a chemical pathway, right? Perhaps dopamine, a loop, where when they want to feel good, they help others. So, yeah, let's do that, right? Let's train for altruism and helpfulness and kindness. Or we can do the other side, right? Where every time this person speaks up, we say, shut up. We assume that they have nothing worth saying. And when they try to help us, we tell them, you're not the right kind of person to help me. So we basically socially train them negatively. And this causes, of course, an adrenal release, but they associate interacting with people with experiencing shame and anger. So basically, let's not be mean girls. America was founded mostly on Protestant ideals. And while those ideals wane as secularism grows, all cultures have a framework, a framework of beliefs and grand narratives. We have a culture, and that often holds us all together so we can work toward common goals and the common good. When this is mapped out by Max Weber, it's how the Protestant work ethic in America really plays into a scenario of converting and conflating moral worth with economic worth, where your labor is your devotion to God. So when you're successful financially through your hard work, it proves you're also morally virtuous. Boy, I sold a whole lot of roofing tiles after God sent that storm last week. Man, with all this money, it's proof God must love me. I mean, sometimes I I wonder why he must hate all those other people so much that, I mean, he sent that storm and made them all poor again. I mean, it's probably because they touch themselves. Everybody knows your wee-wee is from the devil. In this screwy space of achieving wealth as a moral virtue, well, we also have to recognize that each person has their own internal Jesus and the external Lord. You have original sin built within you, which is shame, But, of course, you're forgiven if you can just stop touching yourself. And, of course, there's a community watching you, which you can disappoint, which provides a lot of guilt, especially if you get caught by the whole community while touching yourself. And, yes, you can ask for forgiveness, but it sure is embarrassing to have to do it every week. So, as Protestant ideals wane in this vacuum of belief, right, and we do need belief as a society continue forward, well, another ideology comes in and fills it. And we end up enacting the same shame-guilt structure for this new belief system. But of course, we tend to think that we're progressive because we aren't religious anymore. Now, this becomes the meritocratic trap that we discussed last week. Your failure of education or your lack of ability to earn money, I mean, that means in this system you inherently lack value or worth. Now, once established, we can control people through shame or guilt in this system. We allow the winners to employ hubris and condescension, but I don't think there's any forgiveness in a meritocracy, whereas there might be in certain religions. So it's not just religion or meritocracy. I think this might be typical of all hierarchical structures, right? Even corporate management, something like this. And basically this will just keep repeating itself because we're all really just animals. So you can say things like, we don't need hierarchies, but really they're self-evolving. You can't stop them from showing up. And if you try, you just put yourself on top of the hierarchy. No more leaders! No more leaders! No more hierarchy! Now, you wait what are you doing over there? Are you obeying him? Stop it! Stop no. Yes, obey me, not wait, no, don't don't obey me or him. Just just sit there and do nothing. Jeez. No, don't just sit there. I do what you want. God, wait, not that again. I thought I told you not to obey him. So we have a deep-seated need for social acceptance. And this kind of eases cognitive stress to know where we are in the social hierarchy. These pants are way too baggy, and I hate this jail in my hair. Please just tell me I'm a nerd again so I can go back to wearing normal pants and baseball caps. Now, as an aside, what becomes fascinating here is when people choose not to align with their perceived place in the social strata, when they choose not to join groups or to get involved in tribalism. These are the people who, basically because they're not making their mind up in advance, they're not towing the party line to receive accepted wisdom or friendship, well now they actually have a chance to see more clearly and to develop original thoughts. So the more original you want to be, the fewer groups you need to be a part of. Part 2 So circling back around to guilt and shame, these are super powerful tools. But a society that shames people, where it says they're inherently bad or wrong or damaged, that sets up a politics of pain. And that's borrowing a phrase from Timothy Snyder where winning or betterment isn't the goal or the point, it's really just to make sure everyone is equally miserable. There is an article written in October called The Cruelty is the Point, where Adam Serwer offers some insights on Trump supporters. And this was mentioned in a Daily Stoic podcast with the author of White Lies, Connor Town O'Neill, where the discussion circles around the tendency to support atrocious behavior such as slavery or segregation, because at some point, people start making rationalizations to maintain this system. And often it's for their own financial ease, but also it's for their own moral ease. It's basically easier to condemn or point out flaws in somebody else than to stand up to your community or to change your quality of life so you can live out virtuous principles. So let's recap here real quick. If I understand it right, guilt is when you feel remorse for some actions, both for yourself, but also in how it affects the community around you. Yet at some point when guilt happens often enough, or it's strong enough, it actually ceases to be a corrective. It sort of morphs into an internal issue from which you can feel shame. Now, no one wants to feel guilt or shame, of course, but I think shame is much worse. And when you do feel shame, automatically, just by being who you are, this is a no win scenario for you. And so, of course, the reaction becomes apathy or rage, right? You can either give up or you fight back. The Paris riots in 2005, those sparked from rage, as did the Black Lives Matter movement, as did Achilles. His rage drove him forward. And this is all worth considering from Schloderzic that in Homer, The thymotic impulse exists outside of the person and acts upon them. It is not people that have passions, but passions that have people. Essentially, this is uncontrollable. And most acts of rage are impulsive, and they're born out of years of resentment and fear that descend, and then they explode at these moments of convergence. And of course, shaming the people that shamed you, well, that's rage, and that's power. And there's no plan there, right? This is just retaliatory justice. and that. That's a powerful aphrodisiac. And right now you can see it on the right and the left, where various groups are expressing rage and hurt and fear. And though it's for very different reasons and different causes, there's a fundamental flaw here where our society is not reaching consensus or compromise, but we're just generating guilt, shame, fear, and xenophobia on both sides and lots of other crap. And it's brewing all these resentments and the retaliatory backlashes, the rage explosions. These are overflowing from years of distress for both real and perceived injustices. So don't get me wrong. I realize, of course, that there's a seduction in the moral certitude. I mean, the left really has a whole lot of empathy for everybody. I mean, except the rich or a lot of white people or straight males. And especially not if you're all three of those together, right? There's no empathy left for you. But while the right has this notion of sort of stability and freedom, of course, that for some reason this freedom comes through prisons, guns, and God, none of which allow you to be free, and then there's, you know, more pollution, and there's kind of common sense phrases that don't actually make sense to me, it often happens that group consensus is really post-hoc rationality, and this is applied to subjective bias rewards, and it tends to subvert strategic rationality for contradictory tactical goal attainment right uh the righteous anger here is fueling moral indignation it's morphing the individual into a group think belief machine it's heedless of the self and it's ready to make sacrifices yeah this is not a healthy organism part 3 what if we as humans we only tend to see the subjective even when we claim to be being objective right So we just see the subjective self and our culture as a subjective culture. And this is formed from group consensus, and it's based on individualism and humanity and all these kind of things like that, right? So, of course, individuals are important. They're key. They're vital. Not the group. Group doesn't matter. Unless, of course, that group is standing up for the rights of the individuals. And then, of course, the people in the group are no longer individuals because they're in a group. And they must move as one unit, so what is the individual within that, and is the individual important at all anymore when you're talking about groups? It gets confusing. As Kierkegaard says, Truth always rests within the minority, and the minority is always stronger than the majority, because a minority is generally formed by those who have an opinion, while the strength of a majority is illusory. It's formed by the gangs who have no opinion, and who therefore, in the next instant, when it is evident that the minority is the stronger, they assume its opinion. Which then becomes that of the majority, i.e. it becomes nonsense for having the whole mass on its side while truth again reverts to a new minority. Even more troubling, if there is an objective truth, and not the truth of the group or the crowd or the mass, and we actually want to see or find what this truth is, would we actually be willing to accept its implications and its edicts and what that would do to our lives? Would we be able to look at our heart of darkness? Would we be willing to forego our individuality for the hive mind if that's what's best for humanity? What force of will does it take to move through the personal survival mechanisms that we have in place, such as self-identity and group identity, so that we can momentarily escape our subjectivity and move through the cultural obfuscation of truth? and move into the stratosphere from whence we may glimpse the objective. And perhaps from there we could realize our agency and ambitions are, well, they're not only flawed, but they're pathetically inappropriate and misguided. Well, not many of us have that will or that wish. Part Four The Southern Whites They made a myriad of rationalizations for slavery before the Civil War. And that's, of course, despite the Declaration of Independence that says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, they continued making even more rationalizations after slavery was abolished. They basically found alternate ways to maintain a higher social and moral stance. By maintaining and developing a divisive cultural hierarchy. They developed a cultural set of common sense truths, which today we would call alternative facts. And this disconnects the individual from reality. Their ideology ruined their relationship with reality, to paraphrase Hannah Arendt. Now, Adolf Eichmann also discussed in Hannah Arendt's banality of evil. He wasn't this Nazi monster people wanted him to be. He ended up just being this kind of boring mid-level bureaucrat who just wanted to be good at his job. All he really wanted was a pat on the head from his boss. As Arendt says of Eichmann, What he said was always the same, expressed in the same words. The longer one listened to him, the more obvious it became that his inability to speak was closely connected with his inability to think, namely to think from the standpoint of somebody else. So that's empathy, right? This distinction, bypassing real discourse for the use of catchphrases, slogans, or party lines, is also known as holes of oblivion. To use words without thinking as a type of armor, it can alleviate guilt or shame with repetition, precisely because it bypasses reflective thought for groupthink affiliation. So people reprogram themselves with words, the words of the tribe, and they become unable to see from any other point of view or to have empathy. We get to see here the links the ego goes to to prevent clear-sighted awareness or objectivity. I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to admit you're wrong and move on? Maybe, but that would require a healthy human, and humans tend to desperately protect their subjective sense of worth. The desire to be the good guy is strong. And if not the good guy, at least I'm in the right. So people end up turning a blind eye to the moral contradictions that would demand that they feel shame. As Ryan Holiday mentioned, economically, many people in the South benefited from oppression. And this sentiment is summed up by Upton Sinclair's line. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. And from the groupthink aspect of believing a lie for fear for power, there's a line in Sin City by Senator Rourke that feels even more accurate. Power don't come from a badge or a gun. Power comes from lying and lying big, and getting the whole damn world to play along with you. Once you got everybody agreeing with what they know in their hearts ain't true, that's when you've got them by the balls. And we have to think, perhaps the oppressors are equally operating out of a dark place of confused shame, not wanting to feel guilt, but wanting some acceptance and stability despite the moral cost. And the danger is when people have this ego split, the need to see themselves as righteous despite their shameful actions, it becomes first this kind of internal war of justification as you're isolated through your guilt or shame from the larger public discourse. Then there's this external recruitment and this acceptance to somehow a like-minded tribe where one's shame is not seen as shame, but perhaps this is enlightenment or a hard truth. And in this group, driven there through isolation guilt shame and a lack of forgiveness one finds and offers unwavering loyalty these groups provide social validation and acceptance drawing from the ranks of the shamed by dismissing their shame now this is a form of psychological absolution perhaps once this could be found in the church but increasingly politics has become the new church absolving your complaints and your distress now becomes a badge of honor here you will feel no guilt Feel no shame. Think no longer upon the contradictions that aggrieve you. Recite after me. I am good enough. I am smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. In healthier times, aligning with social groups to alleviate shame or guilt, I mean, that's not really healthy. Uh, but it sort of signals an unwillingness to face hard truths or to grow a spying. But what happens when we're under an emergency or terror conditions that are really threatening survival and people have not practiced virtue or wisdom? I mean, how are they going to react in Austria? Hitler didn't even have to ask and they were setting up Jewish registries in Russia. The SS they developed methods to terminate the Jews before it was even requested of them. Timothy Snyder. He talks about these people anticipating the Nazi desires and acting on them before the order was given. They were obeying in advance, in hopes of a nice little pat on the head. This is the overarching point. Guilt and shame are social manipulators that can isolate people, and social acceptance both drives people and oppresses them. It both allows you to stand up, but equally, it can subsume the individual into a cog. So be careful. People align with power for survival, but also for thriving, And they tend to maintain oppressive institutions because it, in some way, benefits them, and they rationalize it rather than confronting their shameful heart of darkness. We all want to be the hero of our own story. But to shame others is to play a lose-lose race to the bottom, a politics of pain wherein resentment grows until rage explodes. We can tell people what they should and should not do. I mean, just like the Victorian prudishness, or perhaps the idiocy of the Protestant witch hunts. Or what about McCarthyism? But these extremes to save virtue, which was, you know, already broken, or to save the nation, which only destroys it from within. I mean, they promote a schizophrenic society of wearing masks of corrective behavior merely to avoid repercussions. While, meanwhile, you believe something entirely different on the inside. A society based on shame does not promote strong individuals. It rewards the petty. It teaches compliance, not virtue, wisdom, or strength. It's really just another form of authoritarianism, albeit a darker internal form where one is inherently flawed. It's psychologically easier and more honest, as Zizek says, to have an authoritarian who demands compliance without actually telling you you need to feel guilt or shame for not wanting this thing. Go visit your grandmother because I said so is very much different than go visit your grandmother because you should want to. And if you don't want to, you're a wicked, wicked boy. So we should negate the urge to become guilt authoritarians or to weaponize shame. The results are, I don't know, they're catastrophic and they're filled with pain. To build a robust, pluralistic, live and let live society full of curiosity and inquiry, I mean, that sounds great to me. We should find a way to promote forgiveness and to reintroduce broader social discourse and perpetuate mindfulness, both for the individual and for the group. And no, I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm working on it. All right. Thank you so much. That one was a bit tricky. Um, Stitching together ideas on guilt, shame, groupthink, tyranny, sociology, psychology from multiple sources, that was a bit much. But if you enjoyed the show, please, you know, like, subscribe, follow us, share with a friend, all those good things. And of course, if you would like to contribute in some way, either financially or through doing a fake commercial with me, just let me know. Thanks a bunch. All the best.